Today we're going to continue our study of the book of Mark, and we are at chapter 12 of Mark. We're going to be looking today at verses 28 through 34. We've had quite a few hints in the service about uh, what this text is. Uh, You saw it right at the beginning of the call to worship, where we uh, quoted from Deuteronomy, uh, the Shema, which is what uh, every Orthodox Jewish person says every day, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. Uh, that that is uh, the Shema because called the Shema because the first word in Hebrew is Shema, which is the word for hear. We we need to hear and pay attention to that. We're going to hear that again in our text today, and uh, we hope that the Lord will impress it upon us and teach us some things from His Word this morning. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well, everybody's probably going Irish today because it is St. Patrick's Day, uh, but I am uh, going to go Dutch. That's, well, that's kind of a pun, but not really. It's a pretty bad one. Uh, but I have been reading this week in my study some of the documents which form the Confession of Faith for our brothers in the, in the Dutch Reformed churches, uh, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, and the Heidelberg Catechism. So if you're Irish today, I'm, I'm sorry if I let you down, but if you're Dutch, you know, the Quingas, the Anki, uh, you know, this is your day. We're, we're studying your documents here. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, is a catechism. Now, a catechism, let me back up. Uh, catechism is a, is a learning device, a tool for learning. It's in question-answer form, and uh, catechism is, is to be memorized, and you can, you can learn theology, you can learn what the Bible teaches from a catechism, and this was a tool uh, that's been used through the centuries to teach people the faith. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1562, shortly after the Reformation. It's one of the earliest catechisms. It's, it's an excellent catechism, and it begins like this. Now, question number one. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Now he's talking about the comfort uh, of Christ, the the comfort uh, in the good news of salvation. 
that is the, this person's, the, the, the reader of the catechism, the, the learner of the catechism, that is his comfort in life and in death. Now, the question two is the question that caught my attention in my reading this week. It says this, and this goes back to what John Cheney was talking about, things that he understood. How many things are necessary for you to know that you, enjoying this comfort, comfort of question one, comfort of the gospel, mayest live and die happily? How many things are necessary for you to know that you, enjoying this comfort, may live and die happily? What do you need to know to live and die happily? Three, the answer is three. The first, how great my sins and misery are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such a deliverance. Now, I felt like this provided the perfect framework for looking at the passage before us today. And this passage before us helps us to better understand three things. Number one, how great our sin and misery, how great our sin, sins and miseries are. Two, how we may be delivered from all our sins and miseries. And third, how we can express our gratitude to God for this deliverance. And those are my three points, right from the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, now, first of all, how great our sins and miseries are. So this teacher of the law comes up to Jesus. Uh, he sees... He's been standing there, and Jesus has been debating with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They've been asking him these difficult question, uh, questions, and he has answered them, of course, with all of his godly wisdom. And he's impressed, verse 28 tells us, and so he comes to him and asks him a question. Now, the teachers of the law were professional scribes and scholars of the law, they spent their lives studying, classifying, and categorizing the Old Testament law. Now, some of these people had discerned that there were 613 Old Testament rules and regulations. In fact, you can, even today, look on, a, on the uh, Internet, and you can find websites devoted to a delineation of all 613 Old Testament laws. I didn't know that this even existed, but it's there. In their studies, the scribes were always trying to distinguish which of these 613 laws were more important than the others. So you can see this scribe asking Jesus this question, since Jesus has so much wisdom. Surely he would be able to uh, tell us which commandments were the most important. So he asked this difficult questions. Of all the hundreds of rules and commands in the Old Testament, which one is the most important? Now Jesus not only tells him which is the most important, but he also gives him number two as well, uh, a great beginning. Jesus answered, the most important is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your uh, mind, and with all your strength. And then number two, to love your neighbor as yourself. Why would Jesus say the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God? And why would he say the second is to love your neighbor as yourself? Have you ever thought about that? Why are these commandments more important than the others? 
Well, if you look at Matthew's account of this conversation, he records something else that Jesus said. Jesus also said, uh, after he delineated the two greatest commandments, he said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So basically, the Old Testament depends on these two commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor. In other words, all the other words, all the other commandments given in Scripture are simply telling us how to fulfill these two commandments. How do we love God? How do we love others? Now you think about that. Think about the Ten Commandments. Well, the first four tell you how to love God. You know, if you love God, uh, you don't worship other gods. If you love God, uh, you don't make an idol out of, out of God, uh, in, in the image of God. Now that's a little hard to understand, but you think about that. Uh, I was asking the girls today in communicants class, had they ever in art class sat a, a, across from a partner and had them draw a picture? You know, you draw a picture of one another. You're learning how to do, uh, uh, you know, uh, portraits of another person. And, uh, of course, I know when I did this, I always thought my artwork was better than everybody else's. And, and uh, mine was certainly a perfect rendition of the person. I completely captured them totally on the paper. But if you ask that person, I'm sure they had quite a different opinion. And uh, I am not an artist today because that career path got closed off to me pretty quickly. I was a legend in my own mind when it came to my artwork. God is an eternal being uh, with all these characteristics. If you make an idol out of God, uh, you limit him in some ways. My artwork... Uh, to my friend, certainly limited their looks. You know, it was an insult to them to, for me to say, this looks exactly like you. It didn't look anything like them at all. Any idol that we make of God is not going to look like him. It's not going to capture him fully and completely. It's going to defame him in some way. That's why we shouldn't make idols of God. That's why it's unloving to try to capture God in an idol. Uh, if we love God, we won't use his name in vain. Uh, if we love God, we will dedicate, as, he is, as, as his wish, one day out of seven uh, to worship him and to rest from our labors. That's how we can love God. Well, how do you love others? Well, if you, if you love someone else, you won't murder them, obviously. If you love someone else, you won't steal from them, and so on and so forth. Uh, the Apostle Paul mentions this in Romans 13. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So you can see why Jesus lists these two uh, commandments as the top two because all the other commandments are just expositions of these first two commandments. We can turn it around and you can look at it in a different way and you can say the, uh, that all sin is a failure either to love God or to love others. Every time we're sinning, it involves uh, a lack of love either to God or others or both. I hope that helps you see 
what Christ is saying here. The greatest duty that we are required of by God is to love, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, back to the point that I'm making. The point that I'm making is this, that we need to see, or that this passage helps us see, something that we need to see, that our sin and misery is great. How does this passage show us our sin and misery? Now, to know the answer to that question, all we need to do is think about what this law actually requires us to do. What, is it, what does it mean to love? That's a difficult question. I started researching. You know, I just wanted to get a definition of love so I could lay it out there for you. But when you start looking up definitions for love, there is not a good one out there. Uh, if you look at the dictionaries, it's, it's especially atrocious. Uh, you know, they're always talking about emotion. There's so much confusion in our day about what love actually is. How, how do you put that into words? It is a very difficult question. People today want to talk a lot about the emotions and the feelings. And that certainly is part of love. But it's not uh, what love is. Love is an action. If you look at what Jesus is saying here, to love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your strength, those require not only our emotions, but our will as well. How else are you going to love the Lord with your strength, your physical being? Love is something that you do. When I think of love, I think of words like devotion and delight. To delight in something, to, to be devoted to something. If you love someone or something, you're devoted to it. Uh, you uh, seek its good. You uh, think about it. You love it with your mind. You know, what do you really love? You know, we want to find out what that is. All you have to do is think about, what do I think of when I'm not doing anything? Where does my mind go when uh, I don't, I'm not thinking about anything else? No one has my attention. I'm just thinking. Where, what, is, what does my mind like to dwell on? That usually will turn up what, what is actually what your heart loves the most, what your mind loves the most. Now, I can sit here and break down the heart, the soul, the mind, the strength, but what, what the requirement is here is that we are to love God with all of our faculties, with the sum total of our being. Everything that we are, we should be uh, about loving God. That's the greatest commandment. And when you think about how to do that and how we can't, we, not only do we not do that, we cannot do that. It, it is... We, we are incapable, it is impossible for us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we think of love as just an emotion or a feeling, we can't even sustain that. To, to feel uh, love and excitement about God all the time. We, we can't do that. But when you say that love is much more than emotions, it's the actions, the, the seeking the good and, and promoting the other person, well, we certainly fall short in that standard. That's just the first law. And then we talk about loving our neighbor as ourselves. Now, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's not commanding us to love ourselves. He's not, you know, Whitney Houston had it all wrong. Learning to love yourself is not the greatest love of all. You know, if you're, if you're not familiar with that song, it's a Whitney Houston song, and, and that's what she was saying. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. 
Uh, it's a sappy, sweet song. But so full of falsehood. It is not the greatest love of all. Learning to love others, learning to love God is obviously the greatest love of all. Learning to love someone else, to give yourself away, is a greater love than loving yourself. What Jesus is saying here is that you already love yourself. You, you do that naturally. You can't stop loving yourself. Uh, you know, even people who struggle with self-hate, they're focused on themselves. Uh, Pascal has an interesting quote where he says, everybody seeks happiness, their own personal happiness. Even the person who commits suicide seeks their own happiness because they think they would be better off dead. They would, be, they would like themselves, like their situation better. They're self-interested. So Jesus assumes that we're self-interested, self-involved, we love ourselves. And when he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, he's saying we should meet the needs of others with all the energy, delight, creativity, and consistency with which we meet our own. When you put it that way, what should it do to you? The law should really slay us. It, It should make us see how far short we fall. William Tyndale was one of the first people to translate the the Bible into English. And when he did so, he wrote a prologue to it. And I've given you an excerpt from that on the front of the bulletin. And one of the priorities he had in this prologue was to explain to people the distinction between law and gospel because he knew a lot of the people who were reading the New Testament for the first time would not understand the difference. They had never read the Bible before And if you don't come to it understanding that distinction, you're going to get confused. So he writes about it. And I'm not going to take the time to to read all that. But but what he says in there, and you can read it this afternoon in your free time, uh, is that the law kills our consciousness. It drives us to Christ. It helps us to see how broken we are, how we cannot fulfill the law of God. When you read the law, you shouldn't say, well, I need to try harder. I mean, it's a temptation for us to preach it this way. For us to say, look, you people, you need to love God more. And you need to love one another more. Well, that's true. But you can't do it. I would be telling you to do something that you are incapable of doing. No, when we read the law, we, wouldn't, we don't need to say, I need to try harder. What we should say is, I am incapable of doing that. And I need someone to save me and deliver me from my sin. The law, Paul tells us, is a tutor, a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. It convinces us of our sin and misery. And when Jesus says, here are the two greatest commandments, we don't have to look at any other commandments to be slain by the law. It points us to our brokenness and our need for something outside of ourselves to save us. Back to the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 3 says, How do we, I'll I'll anglicize it for you a little bit. How do you know your misery? The answer is out of the law of God. The law of God shows you your misery. Question four, what does the law of God require of us? And then it gives us these two great commandments. To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Question five, can you keep all these things perfectly? The answer is in no way, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That's our nature. 
That's what John was talking about when he said, I, I began to understand certain things. He understood that he wasn't perfect, uh, that, that his works, he understood his works weren't good enough. And when he began to understand that, that's when he could receive deliverance. And that brings us to our second point. This passage tells us how we may be delivered from all our sins and miseries. Well, we need forgiveness and we need justification. We need to be forgiven. We need to be pardoned from our sin. Uh, and Jesus does that. That's what he did on the cross. He pardoned us from our sins. He, he took the penalty for our sins, for our lack of love, for our lack of loving God, and for lack of loving others. And he bore the eternal punishment for that on the cross. Much more than that, I mean, not only that, did he pardon our sins, but he justified us. He made us right before God. If you're pardoned from a sin, if you're pardoned from uh, a crime, you're able to walk away and not be punished for it anymore. But it doesn't mean uh, you, you, know, you are a good person. It just means you've been pardoned. Well, what justification does is even more. What Christ has done for us is even more than just pardons us. We are declared righteous. We, we are declared uh, completely exonerated and given the Congressional Medal of Honor. All that Christ has done is credited to us. And what has Christ done? He never sinned, which means he always loved his Father perfectly. He always loved his neighbor as himself in action, uh, the way he felt about it, every attitude he had. He perfectly fulfilled the law for us. Hebrews 2.10 says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. It doesn't mean there that, that Jesus was imperfect in any way. But he rendered perfect obedience his entire life, and he did so in, uh, in an environment of temptation and suffering. And he was specifically called to do everything obediently, but specifically one thing, which was to be a sacrifice for sin on the cross. And all of his life of suffering and, and, and overcoming temptation in his human nature was training, training, training. And when he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he says... Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Uh, he was tempted to not go to the cross, to, to, to flee from what the Father had told him. But he had learned obedience through his life. He had been hardened in the fires of temptation and suffering. So when he came to that point of ultimate suffering for our sin, he was able to say, not my will, but your will be done. He rendered the perfect obedience in our behalf. And when you put your faith in Him, uh, He declares you righteous and you are credited with that righteousness, with all of His obedience, so that a holy God declares you free from guilt and sin and welcomes you into His family. That's how you're delivered from your sins, through faith in this Redeemer, this Deliverer, the One who brings us salvation. Now, thirdly, and I'll just say one thing about it. How can we express our gratitude to God for this deliverance? 
And that's the question, isn't it? How do we live the rest of our lives to, to love that deliverance and to express our gratitude for it for the rest of our lives? How do you show gratitude for what Christ has done for you? Love God and love others. And of course, the commandments tell us how we can do that. So we're back to the law again, but it's not a way of salvation. It's a way to show gratitude. You think about the law. When, when God saved the people of Israel in the Exodus, they crossed the Red Sea. When did it, he didn't give them the law before they left Egypt. He saved them, delivered them, called them to himself. Then he gave them the law. When Joshua is about to die and they've gone into the promised land, he says, you know, uh, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people say, we will serve the Lord as well because he has delivered us. We will obey his voice. We will obey his commands because he has delivered us. The law is not a way of salvation. It's a response to salvation, keeping the law. How can we express our gratitude to God for his great deliverance for us? Well, keep the law. Seek to keep it. We'll do that imperfectly, but the Lord will help us to grow in that. He'll help us to mature in our uh, understanding that we're broken and needy and that by his grace and the work of the Spirit in us, he is forming and molding and shaping us into the image of Christ. Final example, and I'll close with this. The Apostle Paul. Three places in his writing he tells us about himself, and I think it's telling what he says about himself. In AD 55, he writes the Corinthians and he says, I am the least of the apostles. Well, that's pretty good company. I mean, it's a humble statement. I'm the least of the apostles. It's like saying, you know, uh, you know I, I'm, uh, I'm in the top ten. I'm number ten of the greatest people in the world. You know, I'm just there at number ten. Well, you know, there's 12 or 13 apostles. He was the least well, that's 55. In 57, in Romans, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In the early 60s, he writes Timothy, and he says, this, is, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I am the chief of sinners. It's a big move from being the least of the apostles to the chief of sinners. Now, Paul hadn't gotten worse in his life. No, he had grown to understand his sin more and to appreciate grace more, and he lived a life of gratitude for it by giving his life in service to God and to others. May the Lord work that in us as well. Let's pray together.